Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Keep left the program of the Victorian Labor College. In the studio is John Lafferty. Hey, good morning, listeners. Kim Doyle. Hi, everyone. And myself, Chris Gaffney. <laughs> and uh, what's that? No sound, I don't think. Not, not Mark. Can you hear the yes, sound yes. there on your no, you're, it's all It's all happening. It's all happening. Uh, <laughs> all right, Kim. <laughs> yeah, I don't hear anything here. No, yeah, well, you're it's probably serious. deaf. Huh? You're probably a bit deaf. No, no, no. Uh, he's getting very old. Turn it off. What? Can you hear? Yes. Oh, all right, all right. All right, now, Kim, you were going to yes, I was, kick off. Yes, I am going to. You may or may not have noticed that the Chinese stock market has taken dive over the last three weeks. On the 12th of June, uh, shares peaked, um, having grown by 150% over the previous 12 months. But now, share prices have dropped by 30% and panic has set in. As the market falls... Uh, it is taking with it uh, the life savings of many tens of millions of Chinese workers and middle-class people who make up roughly 80% of the investors. These investors have been subjected to a very cruel hoax. The government has pushed workers and middle-class people to speculate on the stock market. There is no social security in China. Health care was once free, but it is now expensive Housing, which was provided by the government and state-owned enterprises, is now in the hands of the real estate and property development industries, and education costs are rising and pensions are low. Chinese workers, um, therefore, have sacrificed their living standards and their ability to purchase everyday goods in order to save to avoid being impoverished in their old age and to be able to afford things like medical bills. And these savings are equivalent to about 30% of Chinese GDP. And it was the Chinese government and the media that encouraged these ordinary people and investors as well to buy into stocks. And they were told that the shares were a guaranteed road to riches. So Chinese President um, Xi Jinping's program um, since he took office in 2013 has been to advance Chinese capitalism by doing two things, by more tightly integrating Chinese financial markets into global markets, and he's done this through allowing foreign investment via the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, and has also attempted to boost consumer spending. So the government encouraged uh, middle-class people and better-off workers uh, to uh, to buy shares in, in order to hopefully, well, they were betting on these people having share portfolios would mean that they would go out and spend money. Um, But that hasn't been the case. And this is to make up for the fall in demand for Chinese exports in world markets and to try and rebalance their own domestic economy away from investment. So people might have seen pictures of those big highway projects that Mm -hmm. end up going to nowhere. I think there's even a replica of Paris, central Paris in Mm. If, if you, could, you can Google it, um, that's completely abandoned. They've got, like, the Eiffel Tower and everything. Uh, so They've got a lot of, um, you know, like almost cities with a whole lot of flats, a whole lot of places for people to stay. There's not actually any people in them. Yeah, ghost towns. Yeah. 
In a way, it sounds like a fairly good problem, though. Well, I think the reason that it's a problem for them is that they end up being quite dependent on America and other yeah. people buying their exports. Oh, absolutely. They depend on the West to buy all those uh, clothes and everything, all the other Chinese. Exactly. And it's exports. quite a conundrum for them because what so far has driven their wealth has been the fact that they pay so little to their workers. But, of course, the problem with that is that they then don't have any internal domestic economy because there's mm, no there's, one who can afford to buy it. Yeah, there's no... Yeah, exactly right. Mm. Well, they're trying to turn it into what they call a consumer economy where mm. much of the activity comes from the Chinese people themselves actually buying the goods. But as you say, the big problem is that if you don't pay workers any wages, and this is what the Australian capitalists don't seem to realise this, if you lower the wages, you lower their ability to spend. Exactly. Mm. Mm. And, and another poll that I saw a little while ago or study actually said that the main problem in both the Australian and the European economies was actually the fact that consumer spending was down. So all this rubbish about austerity, which I'm sure we'll get onto mm. later, you need, people is need just disposable nonsense. income in order mm. for the, the engine of capitalism to keep going on. Yeah, not that we're trying to save capitalism from itself, but... Um, <laughs> not possible. <laughs> not possible. <laughs> Even if you wanted to. This, no, we're not uh, uh, no. verifying okay. So the central bank, um, the People's Bank of China, did plenty to exacerbate this share bubble. It cut interest rates and it lowered reserve requirements for banks, allowed them to loan more, and it gave banks access to cheap funds. And in mid-April, it allowed individuals to open up to 20, sharing, uh, 20 shares trading accounts, producing an explosion of trading activity. Now, it has all fallen apart, and the government's attempts uh, to slow the collapse in the share market have come to nothing. In fact, they've made things worse. So the Chinese financial authorities have banned major shareholders, corporate executives and directors from selling their shares in listed companies for a period of six months. And this just seems to have panicked the markets. So concerns are now being expressed that government intervention may actually be making the situation worse. Um, So Marcus Mobus, the chairman of Templeton Emerging Markets Group, said that the continuing intervention suggests desperation. It actually creates more fear because it shows that they've lost control. So there are indications that the crash is actually beginning to impact the rest of the world. There has been clear signs of the global... Well, some of the clear signs of the global impact of the China meltdown have been that uh, Asian markets were down and the China-sensitive Australian share market fell 2%. European markets were steady or slightly up, but Wall Street uh, later recorded a significant fall. And then there is the steep decline in the iron ore price, which is now down to less than one-third of its peak in 2011. It has been going down for quite a while, though. Yeah, there's too much saturation in the market. I think that's why Uh the, the, um, you know... um, Gina Reinhardt and the the big um, companies are trying to knock out some of the small, Small, smaller ones, smaller ones like Twiggy Forest, much to the the little ones, the little guys. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, Yeah, the little guys. Smith Street, and you know, hey, you got five bucks. (laughs) Yeah, they might be. Um, So, fund managers in Australia have warned that you know, at current prices, basically, as you said, some of these so-called smaller Mm. firms are going to be unviable. So domestically for China, the crash will exacerbate problems in the productive economy. It is likely that, you know, the overnight destruction of vast amounts of 
wealth of ordinary people is going to cripple consumption and therefore further depress the Chinese economy. And journalistic coverage in the financial papers is really notable for the lack of any care for ordinary people in China. You know, to them it's just, you know, the market's up, the market's down. Sure, sure. That's the way of the world. And if you contrast the coverage of China with that of Greece, uh, Greece has got blanket coverage while China has largely been restricted to the financial pages. Not that I'm saying that Greece is an extremely important. Um, but despite, and this is all despite the fact that the fall in shares has wiped out $3.4 trillion from the value of the Chinese stock exchange, which is not far short of the total value of uh, the whole of the German economy, of GDP. And, or you can think of it as 10% of the Greek debt repayments, um, so equi- which are equivalent to $354 uh, billion. So that compared to $3.4 trillion is, is something that should be... Yeah, it, it is. Well, if you're looking at those figures, it looks very small. But, I mean, I think for us on the left, uh, Greece is really very significant in that it's exposing the mm. class. Yes, uh, and it's politically incredibly important. Yeah, it, it is. It is very important. It's, I mean, Greece is not a great big country. A guy was on TV the other day. He was saying, well, uh, I think he said Melbourne has a bigger economy. No, sorry, Victoria has a bigger economy than Greece. Some American cities have a bigger economy than Greece. Yeah, but so, it's, uh, the first time, it's the first time that the workers have yes. said, enough. That's yeah. right. Enough already. Yeah, so, it's yeah, a, it's hugely politically important. I think mm. the figure I heard was that Greece represents 1.3% of the... European, European Union yeah. economy. That's right. So yeah. it's actually it shows how incredibly important it is because if a country that's so economically insignificant in the eurozone mm. is such a fuss about it, it must be politically important. But Iceland is an even smaller country and they basically told the banks to get stuffed. So well, so did Mexico. So did yeah, Mexico. Well, and they all got one. through it. Yeah, they all got through <laughs> it. <laughs> and the, no, the IMF and the, the Europeans are worried, of course, that if the Greeks succeed... We'll set an example. Exactly. Yeah, so that's the, what they're the really worried about. say no, thumb their noses at the, uh, the European banks. I mean, mm. most of the money being paid by the Greeks, only being lent to the Greeks, only a tiny proportion is spent on the people. Mm-hmm. The vast bulk of this money that the Greeks uh, apparently owe has gone to banks. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the figures, the amounts gone to banks are extraordinary. Basically, mm-hmm. they've just made private debt public and then said that they're going to punish That's the exactly great people it. for it. That's right. I think as well, the well, what's happened in China, although it has its own particular characteristics, uh, there is something in common with what's happening in the West. And it's the fact that in the West that they've looked to um, basically, I suppose, financial solutions or asset inflation as a way of driving up the price of paper assets in an attempt to stimulate the real economy. Um, and this has been used in North America, Europe and Japan since the global financial crisis. Um, and it's called, often called uh, quantitative easing and it has been responsible for record low interest rates, which I suppose we've experienced here, mm. and stock market growth and increased fortunes for financial institutions and wealthy investors, but it really hasn't done anything to stimulate the real economy, which no. I think is what they're worried about in Australia too. Well, it's I, catching up with them. It's catching up with them. I think it's interesting you use the word characteristics in reference to the Chinese. Uh, back in the late 70s, early 1980s, a very famous book came out, which was by Dong Xiaoping, the uh, 
paramount Chinese leader of the time, and it was called Socialism with Chinese Characteristics. Some cynical people thought, well, why didn't he just call it capitalism? But, yes, um, well, quite. There is a very big state economy still in China. There was a, you know, there's a lot yeah. of government ownership mm-hmm. there. Yeah, the Communist Party so does not, have a, a big influence, so I yeah. wouldn't want to say that everything is synonymous or the same as... Uh, yeah. Exactly the same as the Not exactly Western the same, economy. No. Okay, right. let's. Yeah, just um, but just to quickly wind up, this crash will have political consequences in China, um, obviously, because um, uh, Xi Jinping uh, had made it such a crucial policy. So hopefully, there won't just be hostility from the investors, but also hostility from the working class who's made to suffer if the economy um, starts as to tank. Always. Yeah, and our ruling class will. No doubt. I'm surprised they haven't done so already, but I'm sure they'll get around to it. People like Joe Hawkey will be using this as another reason why we need to have more austerity here. Well, even yes. everything if, is a reason for us to have more austerity. Yeah, that's right. Even though I was, I was listening to the programme just before, and I think they said that $80 million, $80 million has been spent on this uh, witch hunt into the unions. Is that right? Eighty million? I thought I'm it was one sure. eight million. Anyway, I'm not sure. It's a hell of a lot of money, considering yes, yes, it was yes, supposed to be tightening yes. our belts. All right, uh, John. Do you want to give a, a brief thing? Have you? Yes. Um, yeah, I was going to speak a little bit about Mr. Abbott. Uh, this week, there was yet more friction within the ruling Liberal National Party coalition government. Prime Minister Tony Abbott managed to avoid a leadership challenge back in February. But major coalition politicians seem yet again to be lining up to criticise him. The criticism tends to stem around Abbott's G.I. Joe posturing and his overstated use of the war on terror stance. For his part, Abbott revels in the role of cheerleader for Washington's ongoing war drive. Now, last Sunday, Mr Abbott visited Sydney Harbour and he toured the Blue Ridge, The Blue Ridge is the command ship of the U.S. Navy's Pacific Fleet. This tour was part of the launch of Operation Talisman Sabre. I love these names they give them. They're all butch names, aren't they? (laughs) That's always the best thing about these war drills. The HMS Kill. Tony Abbott Abbott got a new leather jacket, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. That's Did that come with the warship? I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, I I haven't seen it yet, but I, I think I might have put in an order for one of them. But uh, So this was part of the launch of Operation Talisman Sabre, which is a military exercise involving armed forces from the United States, obviously, they organise it, but also from Australia, New Zealand and Japan. Mm. The Japanese force only involves about 40 military personnel. This is a small number, but the very fact that Australia is being used, this country, to stage Japanese preparations for a war with China should concern us all, especially mm-hmm. those of us who know anything about history, who mm-hmm. are actually there. I suppose and I wasn't there, but you know, <laughs> if you know anything about it. In the years 1937 to 1945, Japanese imperialism was responsible for the deaths of an estimated 20 million-plus Chinese civilians. That's just the Chinese civilians. Many other nationalities suffered too. Today, militarism, yet again, is a growing force in Japan. It needs to be checked, not encouraged. In a boyish attempt to emulate George W. Bush circa 2003, remember when he declared the war in Iraq, mission accomplished, Mm -hmm. back in 2003? Yep. And he landed on 
board the, um, I think it was an aircraft carrier, wearing one of those fancy leather jackets with the badges on it. They so, do come with the warships. Yeah. <laughs> you get a free warship with you the jacket. You've got a souvenir. <laughs> yeah, $50 jacket, chuck in an aircraft carrier. So um, trying to emulate George W. Bush circa 2003, Tony Abbott landed aboard the Blue Ridge warship in a, on a helicopter wearing an Air Force flight jacket and headgear. He lauded the U.S. military presence in Australia, and I had another quote from even more ridiculous, but he lauded the U.S. military presence in Australia as, quote, a comforting presence amid significant challenges in many parts of the world. This yes, yes. A little bit John Howard there. What did, what did John Howard want us to be? He wanted us to be relaxed and comfortable. I think that was his first. Yeah, that was. I remember those posters with the people with the balaclavas and relaxed yeah. and comfortable. <laughs> I just want to be lying back in the armchair, watching the ashes, yeah, yeah, yeah. no worries. Okay. So anyway, Operation Talisman Sabre is a very large event. It involves 33,000 personnel from the four participating countries, 200 aircraft, 21 ships, and three submarines. It is a massive war game orchestrated by Washington right here on Australian soil. It is a feature of what Barack Obama calls the pivot to Asia. Of course, Abbott, we know this by now, he likes nothing better than to also position himself in a, as in a leading role in the 12-year-old Declare War on Terror, the one which was supposed to have ended back in 2003. This week, though, he cops some criticism from his supposed allies in the governing coalition. On Tuesday, Communications Minister Malcolm Turnbull made a speech which seemed to attack Abbott's use of the war on terror to assault democratic rights at home. Turnbull was speaking at one of those establishment gab fests known as the Sydney Institute. He ridiculed Abbott's claim that Australia was at war with the ISIS death cult, saying, quote, Turnbull said, it is important not to overstate that threat. Referring to ISIS propaganda, which says, before long we'll be stabling our horses in the Vatican, Turnbull said, quote, we should be careful not to say or do things which can be seen to add credibility to these delusions. It is interesting to note at this point that both Tony Abbott and Malcolm Turnbull are actually practicing Roman Catholics. So while Abbott, Turnbull, and Bill Shorten's another one, while they all would no doubt be alarmed to see an ISIS presence in the Vatican, it's only Tony Abbott who seems to suggest that this is actually a possibility. <laughs> a final statement which Turnbull made has quite a bit of truth to it. This is quite a good one. Quote, The Islamic terrorist seeks to provoke the state to overreact because it creates a more receptive environment for the extremists' recruiting efforts. Uh, um, end of quote. This point of view is actually quite similar to the one being expressed by Zaki Mala on Q&A the week before last. Over-the-top reactions from our politicians to perceived or even actual terrorist threats can be used to boost recruitment for terrorist groups. Tony Abbott's statement following that controversial Q&A programme, that was the Monday before last, before that, uh, just after that programme was aired, was that, quote, heads would roll at the ABC. This suggests they may be trying to emulate ISIS tactics. He then went on to ban all of his parliamentary front benches from even appearing on the show. This now appears to be a reluctance by many Liberal Party members to appear on any ABC show. 
Even the National Party Senator, good old Barnaby Joyce, we all love Barnaby Joyce, he's great for a laugh. Barnaby Joyce, while obeying his boss's demand to boycott Q&A, he couldn't help grumbling about it publicly. It, he wasn't given enough notice, etc., etc. I liked it when he tried to kill Johnny Depp's dogs. That was funny. Yeah, he doesn't like animals. Oh, he doesn't like animals, no, no, you know. No, no, the, the, the RSPCA. He doesn't like cattle, but he no. forces to go over And I think he's getting a bit uh, grumpy with his boss, too. Mm-hmm. But gr- even grumbling about this, are we? I think we've got to. No, no, we've got, we got someone to do callback. Oh, we do? Mm. Oh, what? I was going slow because I didn't think we had yeah. any calls. Sorry, <laughs> well, wind up. Wind I'll up speed now. things up now. Okay, let's get going. Now, Stason, surely that's not an act of true loyalty to the leader by uh, Barnaby Joyce. Anyway, Malcolm Turnbull has lined up to appear on Q&A this Monday, but as of last Tuesday, he still hadn't declared whether he would appear or not. That also would seem to be a further act of disloyalty to the man they recall the team captain. The criticism of the Prime Minister also extends to ex-colleagues. Former Immigration Minister Amanda Vanstone joined Turnbull in speaking out against Abbott's plan to strip citizenship from dual nationals if the government sees fit, regardless of the courts. In 2009, Turnbull lost his leadership to Abbott by one vote in a spill motion. In February of this year, he failed to challenge after everyone was expecting him to. I think a third leadership struggle may yet occur. And can I just say, just quickly, a public announcement. Uh, PIPSI, the PIPSI meetings, this is public interest before corporate interest. <clears throat> and at 1.30 this Sunday, which is July the 12th, uh, they're going to have a meeting, and Joe Toscano will be speaking at that, and that's at Hastings Hall, which is 3 High Street, Hastings. And on uh, Tuesday week, 5 p.m. Tuesday week, which is July the 21st, they'll be holding uh, what is a fortnightly meeting at Frankston Library. So if anyone, that's down the peninsula, obviously. But, uh, but things are happening in the city too, but anyone who wants to come along to these is perfectly welcome. Well, during the week, we've had a hand-picked group of 40 uh, Aboriginal officials and academics join Tony Abbott and Bill Shorten in Sunday for what was billed as by the establishment as a historic supplement mm-hmm. to discuss a proposed recon- rec- referendum to recognising Indigenous people in the Australian Constitution. Uh, a very contrived event. Um, it, this, it, what it does, it shows the widening social and economic gulf between those privileged layers of the Aboriginal community and the vast majority of Aboriginal people who still live in poverty-stricken working-class suburbs, rural towns and remote settlements. We must remember that what they're talking about amending is the Australian Constitution. Now, remember that the Australian Constitution is a, uh, is a British colonial-era instrument that upholds capitalist property rights, has no Bill of Rights, or any protection of any democratic rights whatsoever, not even the right to vote. Oh. It was adopted in 1901 to legitimise and enforce the establishment of Australian capitalism. And at the various constitutional conventions which took place in the late 1890s, no women were present, no Aboriginals, no workers, no trade unions. Rich white guys. Rich white white guys in service to, to the United Kingdom. In fact, these days, the greater the assault by the corporate and political establishment on the jobs, social conditions and basic democratic rights of the working class 
the greater the effort there is to concentrate on racial and other identity politics. Yep. In other words, to cover up the fact, <clears throat> the fundamental class issues at stake here. Yeah, yeah. Aboriginal people, like the rest of the working class, are facing a wholesale onslaught on essential public services, welfare entitlements, jobs, wages and working conditions, amidst the worsening fallout from the 2008 global financial breakdown. While Shorten and Abbott were taking photo opportunities with their invited guests, the intensive against Indigenous peoples being intensified. On July the 1st, just days before this Kirribilli gathering, the Abbott government cut off funding for the Aboriginal Medical Service at Mount Druitt in Western Sydney, cutting adrift its 11,000 active patients, 66 doctors, nurses and other staff. The overworked medical service had tried to meet the many health needs of Australia's largest single Aboriginal community, the more than 32,000 Indigenous people living in the working-class suburbs of Western uh, Sydney. This closure was just one of the many social crimes being committed. Since the 2014 federal budget, the Abbott government has tripped, stripped $600 million in funding from Indigenous community organisations, including health, legal, language support services, it's also driven moves to shut down hundreds of remote settlements in Western Australia and elsewhere, forcing the residents off traditional lands. Under the government's Indigenous Advancement Strategy, IAS, all spending on Aboriginal programs have been relocated to grants to organisations that deliver outcomes, that is, in the Abbott government's terms, outcomes that will cut people off welfare and coerce them into low-paid work including work for Indigenous business operators, especially in the mining, pastoral and tourism industries. The IAS directly serves the interests of the business entrepreneurs and the upper middle class elements represented at the Kiri, Kiribili Summit. Those selected to, intend to attend, the Aboriginals who were selected in, include the CAOs of land councils that run extensive regional businesses, highly paid government advisors, and prominent university professors. Among them were the Labour Party President Warren Mundine, and a mongrel if ever you, you saw one, Cape York Program Director Noel Pearson, Pearson. and Professor Marcia Lang Langdon. That's the same three, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. These three have been the most vociferous advocates for years of quarantining, hmm. or so-called cutting off passive welfare to Indigenous people also by facilitating projects by mining conglomerates on native title land in return for the establishment of investment funds for Aboriginal business owners and punitive interventions in Aboriginal communities in the name of combating alcoholism, drug abuse, domestic violence. And remember the intervention into Northern Territory a few years ago justified on the basis of child abuse. And yet in the <coughs> thousand-page report that they produced, there wasn't one mention of child abuse. The entire project is based on deepening the program of reconciliation adopted over the last 40 years to try and incorporate this very thin layer of our Aboriginals into the establishment. Their perspective is based on blaming white society, note that, not the capitalist system, for the oppression of Aborigines, and seeking diverse from the ever-widening social divide between the financial elite and the working class as a whole. The first principle guiding the Parliamentary Committee on Constitutional Recognition issued last week 
was to contribute, quote, to a more unified and reconciled nation. Now, this is nonsense, because it's under conditions where social inequality in Australia is growing at one of the fastest rates in the entire world, producing mounting class and social tensions. Even Pearson, the Aboriginal leader, was clearly nervous about opposition from Indigenous people as to what what their leaders were doing. Pearson, together with Langdon, who reached Langdon, Professor Langdon, who recently gave a magazine interview expressing admiration for the money-making gift, quote, and skill, quote, of the super-rich. She advocates the establishment via the Constitution of an Indigenous Council to advise governments on all parliamentary legislation, a potentially lucrative source of employment for aspiring Aboriginal populations. In order to drum up support, the recognised plan revolves around finalising a referendum question by 2016, that is, 50 years after the referendum in 67, which gave Aboriginals the vote. That referendum, like today's sham, was falsely presented as a means to redress historic uh, injustices, appealing to widespread sentiments of revulsion towards the 200 years of massacres, academics, removal of children and, and, and stealing of land. In reality, the 67 vote paved the way for measures such as the recognition of native title that have only enriched an Aboriginal elite at the expense of ordinary Aboriginal people, most of whom we might note either live in remote settlements or in the cities where poverty and desperation continues as it always has. This top layer of Aboriginals represented at this bogus uh, fun-fest fun at uh, Kirribilli is now working hand-in-glove with the Abbott government and the parliamentary establishment to take that solar polarisation, social polarisation, even further. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. As Marx explained in Capital, capitalism came into being around the world, including in Australia, enslaving and, uh, and dispossessing Aboriginal people and, quote, dripping from head to foot from every pore with blood and dirt. Blood and dirt, yeah. The historic crimes of this social order can be rectified and over overcome only through a united struggle of the working class. The Aboriginal people are a tiny minority who are suffering exactly the same problems as the mass of the working class in this country. Mm-hmm. And attempts to paint them as a separate problem which can be solved by a few brave words in the Constitution is designed to fool us all. Yes, yeah. or by saying sorry, but it's not sorry if you keep doing... Well, that's right. Sorry, but can we have your land, please? It's all very symbolic and tokenistic, but all seriousness. I mean, we, <coughs> we study things. We look at Australian history and politics. Who actually knows what the Australian Constitution says? Because I don't. Well, it, at it's, the moment, it mean, says nothing of any much interest to you yeah. and I because it guarantees <laughs> no rights whatsoever. It was done Big by the, the capitalist class in each of the states who wanted a, a unified market so that they could export their goods all over Australia mm. without having to pay state duties. Yes, it's linked to That's federation, what it's really about. bringing the and, states uh, together. why we should have any loyalty to this constitution in which we were not consulted, were mm. not represented, women, 50% of the population, no women there. So let's have a whole No branch. Aboriginals, no trade unionists, no workers. What do we owe this constitution? Absolutely nothing. So, what will amending doing it do to yeah, us? So we, if we're really concerned about this, this idea of constitution, we'd actually write up a new constitution completely. Absolutely. And it would mean something, and we'd all know what it was. Children maybe would learn it in school. 
Well, that's right. That's yeah, I right. don't remember learning. Actually, the only constitution I'd be interested in is one for a socialist republic, but that's another question. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.